Welcome back to part 7 of my retrospective on the films of 2009. Phew, we're winding down the year with some amazing stories. As we wrap it up, I hope you all have enjoyed listening and have found out about or rediscovered some fun movies to check out in the near future. Keep in mind that a lot of my reviews have largely been focused on rediscovering little movies you can easily find and enjoy from the very beginning of my having any kind of online creator presence. I personally do not like to just dump on a movie or hold it aloft as the cinematic pinnacle. With that said, let's get back on The Road. This is a film based on the book The Road by Cormac McCarthy, about a man, played by Viggo Mortensen, caring for a young son as they wander the wastes of the world, following an event that killed off all plants and most of the animals. As they try to find safe haven at the coast, they avoid gangs of armed cannibal rapists. Sometimes I hate things I have to explain in a review, and the amount of times lazy writers use rape is embarrassing. We get a glimpse via flashback of what life was like at the start, and then back to the current day, where the father and son discover a group of people captured by the gang for them to slaughter and eat, and are trapped when the gang return. Can they get away safely? From there, the story is one of survivors in the wastelands, looking for ways to make it somewhere safe. It doesn't really have a happy ending or a sad one, just kind of an ending. The cast is amazing. Viggo Mortensen, Charlize Theron, Robert Duvall, and Guy Pearce. So it is surprising that the film waited over a year for release. Online critics gave it scores well above average while many print critics praised it as an important film, giving it near-perfect scores. Those who were critical did not offer much elaboration other than that this film, a drama about a man and his child in a desolate wasteland, did not carry mass appeal. Anyway, it made back just over its budget for a very slight profit. They chose some great locations for filming, between an abandoned turnpike in Pennsylvania some areas in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina, and various parts of the Pittsburgh area and Washington State. The Road seems like an immersive movie, worth giving a watch sometime. Moving on, Brothers is a remake of a Danish film from 2004. In this war film with psychological drama, Captain Sam Cahill, played by Tobey Maguire, is a prisoner of war in Afghanistan. He has to readjust to life back in society as he copes with PTSD, opposite Natalie Portman as his wife and Jake Gyllenhaal as his brother. Tommy, the brother, is an ex-con, and he doesn't get along with Sam's wife, Grace. It's a story of family and the human journey after suffering the agonies of war. Brothers made back a fair chunk of revenue and got mixed reviews, though generally positive to middling online and in print. I can only promise you that this is a powerful drama about the human condition and the struggle of coping with PTSD, led by a trio of actors in the top of their game. Now on to another remake of a foreign film, Everybody's Fine is another all-star film based on an Italian film of the same name, starring Robert De Niro, Drew Barrymore, Kate Beckinsale, and Sam Rockwell, fresh from critical praise for his role in Moon. 
I think part of the problem with the marketing for this is that the trailer almost makes the film look like a comedy drama, when it's more of a drama drama. De Niro plays Frank, a widow and retired blue-collar worker who lives alone in his house full of vintage furniture and decor, expecting his four adult children to come visit for Christmas. But when three cancel and one is unreachable, he decides to set out by train, bus, and plane to get in touch with them, crisscrossing the country. I will say that this one has a sweet ending, so it is not all gray clouds and loneliness. Filming took place mostly in Connecticut. The critics gave the film middling reviews, and it closed after a three-week run. However, it did earn itself some nominations and awards from GLAAD, G-L-A-A-D, for having a positive portrayal of a bisexual in a sapphic relationship. It even features an original song by Paul McCartney that got a nomination for a Golden Globe. This one sounds like it is worth watching in tandem with a good comedy for a full evening. Something you should remember about a lot of these movies being released this late in the year is that they want to get them in the running for award season the following year, hence all these heavy dramas. So now, let's go up in the air. In this film, based on a novel of the same name by Walter Kern, George Clooney plays Ryan, the Axeman in a corporation, downsizing and often trying to provide motivational speeches based on a philosophy he has developed over the years. In his travels, he develops a casual relationship with another frequent flyer. He encounters a woman named Alex. When he comes back to headquarters, he is tasked with training Natalie, an up-and-comer in human resources, who wants to move layoffs to video conferencing. Of course, today video conferencing is commonplace, but back then it was novel. As they travel to Ryan's next stop to lay off people, she gets dumped over text message before they test out her proposed improvement, leading to people breaking down and even one person contemplating self-destruction. After he deals with a problem at a family event in Wisconsin, Ryan realizes that he wants to be with Alex, only to find out that it could never happen. I won't spoil the rest of the film, but the resolution of the story is really interesting and impressive, almost Dickens-esque. At a budget of $25 million, it is easy to see why this film made back over six times that. It has a phenomenal cast worth watching just for that alone. Filming was done around St. Louis, Detroit, and some other locations, largely due to St. Louis providing tax incentives. Honestly, looking back over the pandemic years, looking at the novelty of distance firing, companies were firing people en masse over one-way phone calls first thing in the morning without any notice. So let's never pretend like a business or HR staff care about the people they sack. Critics praised it, with every online critic giving it very high marks. Ebert gave it 4 out of 4, noting that it wouldn't be funny if it had been a comedy after all the misery the recession had caused in 2009, but that the film offers a glimpse into a character. Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune called it a disappointment. Oddly enough, the film has been tied to the children's book The Velveteen Rabbit, where Ryan essentially becomes real, where before he is almost like a plaything, a puppet for the company. And as he reaches his millionth air mile and knows the pain of losing out on life, he becomes real for the first time. I like to think his next trip would be to go see his family. Next, Invictus, directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Matt Damon and Morgan Freeman, based on the John Carlin book Playing the Enemy, Nelson Mandela 
and the game that made a nation. It tells the story of the 95 Rugby World Cup, in which the South African national team, the Springboks, were the underdogs. This was following the recent end of apartheid, and with South Africa hosting, they were able to gain automatic entry. The film spans over years from the date of Nelson Mandela's freedom from prison after 27 years. It's all the excitement of rugby with all the fun of a history lesson, which, if you're a nerd like me, means you're really only just excited to learn about history. This film made back more than double its budget and got positive reviews from critics. Ebert gave it a near-perfect score, noting that it was stirring and a good film. I think that Mandela was a role Freeman was born to play, and this was a great opportunity for him to step up to the part. Despite some decent award nominations, the film only won a few, including Morgan Freeman with an NAACP Image Award for Outstanding Actor in a Motion Picture. But that is not too shabby, to say the least. Check out Invictus at your convenience and discretion, folks. Next, let's talk about a Peter Jackson movie. The Lovely Bones is a movie based on a book of the same name by Alice Siebold. It's a supernatural story about a girl watching over her family from the afterlife, following her murder, and trying to decide whether to seek vengeance against her murderer, or letting her family have peace. It features Michael Imperioli of The Sopranos, Susan Sarandon, Stanley Tucci, Mark Wahlberg, and Rachel Weisz, and was filmed in Pennsylvania and New Zealand. Although it wasn't released widely in the USA until January the following year, it had a limited screening in mid-December. Susie Salmon, played by Saoirse Ronan, is a 14-year-old girl in high school and avid shutterbug in 1973. She meets a neighbor as she's walking through a cornfield on her way home, and he shows him an underground hideout. Things do not go well for her from there. What follows is a story of Susie traveling through the spirit realm and into limbo, encouraged to let go and move on. What follows is Susie's supernatural quest to help stop the neighbor from killing again. Can she do it? You'll just have to watch to find out. This film made back about 50% over its budget, and the actors were praised for their performances. Online critics gave it low to middling scores, but print critics were more mixed. Some called it a failed adaptation, and even Ebert called it deplorable. But his criticism was of the story more than the movie, faulting Jackson for some reason. It got a lot of nominations for awards, but only Saoirse Ronan won any for her performance in categories of Best Actress or Young Actor. I have yet to watch this, but it sounds like an interesting story worth seeing once or twice if you enjoy it. It features a soundtrack of original music by Brian Eno, which can add a unique feel and mood to the story. Now, let's talk about The Princess and the Frog. It's based on a novel by E.D. Baker called The Frog Princess, which itself is an elaborate retelling of The Frog Prince. A lot of people point to this one as early woke Disney by making the protagonist black. But Tiana was not the first female Disney protagonist of color, with those honors going to Pocahontas and Mulan in their respective films. It was directed by the same duo that produced some of Disney's best films of the 80s through the early 2000s, Ron Clements and John Musker. They had written and directed this, having already given us The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, and their first collaboration, The Great Mouse Detective. Although Treasure Planet fared better than Home on the Range, 
I feel like it is worth noting that I actually liked Home on the Range, as it is a cute story, far more reminiscent of several classic Disney animated stories. It's not a franchise or a very loose adaptation of history, a myth, a folktale, or a classic novel. It's just a family-friendly children's story. Yet, somehow, I never heard of it until a few years ago. I digress, though. The Princess and the Frog was a return to 2D-drawn animation that had been gradually phased out over the years as computer animation had taken over the industry. You might notice that I'm not telling you a lot about the story. That's because you probably know the general story or have already seen the film. It is actually a really well-told story, aside from completely ignoring Jim Crow and segregation in the USA's southern states. It features a wonderful subplot about a firefly played by Jim Cummings, a fellow Ohio native. It was well made, following the format of a Broadway musical, including fantastic dance numbers. Some portions of it have even found their ways into TikTok memes by having Keith David's character of Dr. Facilier, a name that means to make easy, also known as the Shadow Man, offer the prince, Naveen, a devil's bargain. The film was a hit, making back more than two and a half times the massive budget, and in my opinion proved that featuring marginalized communities as the protagonists of well-crafted stories tends to carry the broadest appeal, when you stop to consider that the last time Disney had done this well was with Lilo and Stitch years earlier. The aforementioned directors had actually left Disney following the failure of the aforementioned Home on the Range, and part of their bargain in returning to direct The Princess and the Frog was that they start from a place of 2D animation, or at least be able to choose the format of the animation. The studio had struggled finding its way in the new market by making odd movies and CGI like the 2007 time travel adventure Meet the Robinsons, which barely made back its budget. Since the directors had to basically revive the 2D animation department, they started out by producing some shorts in the style of some classic Disney cartoons, specifically one featuring Goofy in a how-to cartoon titled How to Hook Up Your Home Theater. It was a compromise, but the Disney animators were able to use today's more common method of drawing the animation using computers with backgrounds rendered partially from 3D digital models, thus blending the 2D with the CGI, saving on time making the backgrounds and the figures, essentially by making both more fluid, as opposed to the static format of animation done on paper and lucite stills. Also, the animation could be touched up more easily, giving it the seamless quality that the audience expected. In Summa, this is animation done more in the style of Atlantis The Lost Empire, which I also enjoyed quite a bit. If you want some more proof that a film with a black princess and prince was long overdue, this film had one of the best opening weekends for any animated movie, having outperformed the cult classic Beavis and Butthead Do America. It outperformed any Disney movie for the past several years, even one of my personal favorites of all time, The Emperor's New Groove. Tom Saito, an animator at Disney, compared the success of The Princess and the Frog to the relative success of The Great Mouse Detective versus the previous year's flop, The Black Cauldron which had originally been intended as a franchise, but was too dark, scary, and depressing. By contrast, this was the movie that proved all the executives wrong. Most critics gave it really high scores, online and in print. Ebert notably praised it by praising that you didn't need 3D glasses and extra charge on your ticket, 
You didn't have to endure frenzied pace in lieu of characters, a plot, and a story for them to play out. Naturally, conservative Christians objected to the film using pagan magic as the plot device and that the Shadow Man's demonic friends on the other side are too scary. To that I say, he's supposed to be the villain, a Mephisto character. He is not the hero of the story. Which is why I can also see how come the practitioners of Louisiana Voodoo objected to the portrayal of it in the film as seemingly inherently evil. I think the conclusion on its portrayal of Voodoo is similar to how any kind of person exploiting a supernatural power at others' expense is bad. Dr. Fassier is really just a version of Ursula from The Little Mermaid or Frollo in The Hunchback of Notre Dame. It's a good movie that shows how hard work can pay off if people in power treat you fairly. I'm not just talking about the characters. Next, we move on to A Single Man. Co-written, co-produced, and directed by Tom Ford, and starring Colin Firth, Julianne Moore, and Nicholas Holt. It's a period romantic drama based on a novel of the same name by Christopher Isherwood, and that played the film festivals before hitting theaters. It's the story of a gay college professor living in California in 1962. He goes through a dark, low time following the death of his long-term partner in an automobile accident. Through interactions with others, including an old beloved friend, he starts to figure out some things about life and himself. I won't lie, this film sounds fantastic, and it made back more than three times its budget. Originally, promotional posters for the film showed Firth and Moore laying next to one another as if the film was a heterosexual romance, which bothered people who already knew the story and worried that the gay aspect was being concealed in the marketing to get more people to see it. A second poster showed them separately as just two people, without the implied pairing. In addition, even the trailers were recut to leave out clips of the obviously gay content and kept a shot of Firth looking into a female student's eyes, so they were really trying to give this movie the not-gays despite being a film about a gay man. Moore and Ford both felt like it was looking too much like a romantic comedy, while Firth said it was just deceptive, and that it was trying to sanitize the promotional material of anything remotely gay. In social justice, that is called erasure. Apparently, this was all down to a decision made by the film's distributor, trigger warning, the Weinstein Company, where when pressed on the matter, Harvey Weinstein notably stopped the interview. Gee, if only Harvey had listened to actresses like Rose McGowan when they told him to stop. You know, sometimes you don't think you're going to find a lot to talk about with a movie, and then you hit a bump that sends you off on a tangent. Moving on, the critical response was generally positive, especially online. Ebert joined in the chorus of praise for Firth's performance of a man hiding his grief. It also features a really dynamic soundtrack, including original pieces by Abel Korzynowski and Shigeru Umabayashi. Sorry if I mispronounce any of that. And was a popular film come award season, winning Firth a BAFTA for Best Actor in a Leading Role. On to a lighter subject, Broken Lizard presents The Slammin' Salmon. This is a comedy about a competition between waiters at a restaurant. The one to bring home the most money gets $10,000, and the loser gets a beating from the owner. 
a former heavyweight boxer played by Michael Clark Duncan named Cleon Salmon. Is it weird that we've had two films with uh, characters both named Salmon? I don't know. Something fishy about it. It is pretty typical hijinks and wacky antics from this comedy troupe that brought us the cult classic Super Troopers. One part of the film I can say I do not care for is the use of dissociative identity disorder, a.k.a. split personality, as a joke. I can take a lot of jokes, but in this instance, a character that they call Nuts forgets to take his medication and has a Jekyll and Hyde transformation into Zongo, who ends up attacking a customer before the owner, Cleon, knocks him out. This film got a limited release and was on home video within a few months, getting negative reviews for obvious reasons. While Michael Clark Duncan was praised, I think it was mostly due to the sophomoric blue humor that dragged it down, whereas other work of theirs had some variation from some of the cheaper pot shots and shock or gross-out gags in this one. I would give this movie a miss. Now, we can talk about the ironically titled Tenderness, a crime drama starring Russell Crowe and Laura Dern. This story follows three people, a police detective, a recent ex-con named Eric, and a girl named Lori, who is a sort of groupie for Eric. Eric has just been released from prison for killing his parents, and Lieutenant Cristoforo, Russell Crowe, is certain that he also murdered a couple of teenage girls and is liable to do it again. So, naturally, when 16-year-old Lori, who is herself a victim of unwanted sexual advances from adult men at work and at home, comes to develop a fascination with Eric, even hiding in his car to surprise him, we know it can't be good. When she admits that she's a witness to place him with one of the girls he slew, she's playing with fire. After she helps Eric avoid a snare set up by Cristoforo, she decides to self-end, and he tries to save her. He winds up back in prison for her murder, and it turns out that it was her plan all along for him to end her, as she was already tired of living. So Lori's goal could not have been to see him sent back to prison, but rather just to use him to end her own life. I feel like the film makes light of suicide, while managing to simultaneously disparage ex-cons and the police. Critics noted that it fails to deliver, is formulaic, and lacks enough time with Cristoforo. It's based on a book of the same name by Robert Cormier, and I can only conclude that this is probably not a film anyone should bother with. Next is Crazy Heart, a film about a down-and-out singer-songwriter played by Jeff Bridges, and how he turns his life around. It's based on a same-name book by Thomas Cobb, and was co-produced by Robert Duvall, who has a small part in the film. Similarly, T-Bone Burnett co-produced and composed some of the original music for the film. At a budget of $7 million, it made back over six times that. It's a story of recovery from alcoholism and reinventing your career after a hard fall from grace. The story is not as formulaic as I might be making it sound. Critics loved this one, and especially Bridges in the lead role, it won several awards, including two Emmys for Bridges and the original song, The Weary Kind, which was echoed at the Golden Globes and the Broadcast Film Critics Association Awards. Now we come to the biggest movie of the year you probably foresaw this, Avatar, written and directed by James Cameron. It had a huge budget 
and still almost made back roughly $3 billion due to re-releases, such as The People's Republic of China. And yet we only just recently got a sequel over a decade later, despite plans to have made a sequel almost every other year. Well, apparently, after such a long hiatus, the sequels will be released in the coming years. Whoopee. Since a lot of times when a sequel comes out, they show the first film on TV during primetime, I had a chance to rewatch the original, and it does not hold up. I genuinely found it boring, and I had rarely watched it because it's over two and a half hours long and extremely predictable. I have rarely ripped on a movie in a theater, but this film earned that honor alongside Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, and weirdly enough, it was in the exact same theater at the same cinema. It's no surprise that I found it blasé, as when Cameron wrote his 80-page treatment in 1994, he literally says he borrowed from every single science fiction and adventure book he'd read as a kid. I'm not sure how Joseph Campbell would feel about this approach, but as it is, Cameron was trying to innovate cinema by having CGI characters using motion capture in a CGI environment. Okay, but let us consider the fact that computer animation like Pixar films had already proven that CGI was a good medium for animated movies, and that CGI animated movies had been dominating the cinema since DreamWorks Shrek, and that motion capture had been used for years in films like the aforementioned Episode 1, the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, and even just that year in the Zemeckis Disney adaptation of A Christmas Carol. I just fail to see where the innovation is. I guess they strapped a kind of proto-GoPro camera to the actors right in front of their faces, which were covered in dots, to act as a reference for the animators. I'm just not that impressed when it had already been done several times over by the time this movie came out, with its banal story and lack of originality. James Horner did the music for it, which is nice. He's done some great stuff, but this film apparently caused some people to have psychological breakdowns wishing to be reincarnated as the alien species, the Na'vi. While I'm not trying to dump on this movie that just bows to conventions of pulp novels, I feel like story should matter more than spectacle. If you like Avatar, great. I think this story was ruined for me when I watched Dances with Wolves and Fern Gully, which both came out years before Cameron wrote his initial treatment. Next up, did you hear about the Morgans? No, that interrogative is the title. This is another star-studded film with loads of stars in the cast. Wilford Brimley, Sam Elliott, Hugh Grant, Michael Kelly from House of Cards, Elizabeth Moss, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Mary Steenburgen. It's about a rich couple that split when he cheated, and when they witness a murder have to go into witness protection. What follows is a country mouse, city mouse, fish-out-of-water story where this Manhattan couple have to adjust to rural living while in hiding. The way in which Parker as Merrill breaks the rule around phone calls is ridiculous. She's apparently looking to adopt a child, and rather than entrusting law enforcement to deliver a letter to the adoption agency stating that she has to delay things due to unforeseen circumstances, she calls them directly on the phone. The rest of the story seems like it's just excuses for wacky slapstick antics, and the resolution is a little too trite. 
It more or less just all works out by convenience. It made back its sizable budget of $58 million, and then some, but online and in-print critics slammed it as unfunny and lacking chemistry. I can see where they're coming from with such assertions. It does not seem like anything but something to fill 103 minutes of your life. Now let's talk about another film called Nine, but this one is the word form of the number and not the number itself. Why would this come out the same year as the other movie called Nine? This one is based on a stage musical of the same name by Arthur Copet, and features an amazing cast. Set in 1965, an Italian filmmaker named Guido, seriously Guido, gets writer's block after a lot of previous successes, leading him to go and stay in a spa hotel for a while to help him reset. His costume designer, who used to work at a cabaret and music hall, suggests he focus on making the film entertaining. From there, the rest of the story is largely Guido dealing with his marriage and his affair with a married woman as it all falls apart. To find out how he figures things out and gets his life back on track, you'll have to see the film. The resolution for this one is very meta, as the story is based on Federico Fellini. Reviews were middling, and it failed to make back its budget. It won a few awards, but otherwise was not especially praised. In a 2018 interview, the director, Rob Marshall, faulted the distributor, the Weinstein Company, for bad marketing, suggesting it would have built up more excitement if it had screened at film festivals and in limited screenings first. He also felt that he had compromised his vision far too much. Truly, that is a lesson for many of us. Apparently, there was a direct-to-video sequel to American Pie. They managed to get Eugene Levy in on it, among others. I was never a fan of the first one, and American Pie Presents the Book of Love managed to sound even worse. That's all I'll say. Okay, so next we have Alvin and the Chipmunks, the squeakquel. It introduces the Chipettes, which are literally just female versions of the three chipmunk characters. It's a mix of live action and CGI with sped up or pitched up covers of various top 40s. It dominated the Christmas weekend for family viewing, making almost half a billion dollars against a $70 million budget. Once again, just like with Avatar and other films, just because it's successful and popular doesn't make it good. Online and in print, critics were not thrilled. Some noted that the comedy worked, but I kind of stand with Roger Corliss of Time Magazine. Either of the aforementioned Disney products released that winter would have been far more worth it, and as previously stated, apparently Planet 51 was worth it. So, whatever, we'll move on. Jay Perini's biographical novel, The Last Station, was made into an English-language film by a German production company chronicling the last few months of Leo Tolstoy. Christopher Plummer steps up to play him opposite Helen Mirren as his wife, Sophia. Also in the cast are Paul Giamatti, James McAvoy, John Sessions, and Carrie Condon, formerly of the Royal Shakespeare Company. This is a very dry, sobering story, but I think you will enjoy it, as it is compelling, well-acted, and shot in many fantastic locations around Germany and Russia. If you enjoy biopics the way I do, give this one a shot. It should be mentioned at this juncture that although I already discussed the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus earlier in the year, that was for its premiere at Cannes, whereas regular theatergoers did not get to see it until December of that year. Those poor souls. 
Next, we come to a film written and directed by Nancy Myers, a romantic comedy with Alec Baldwin, Steve Martin, and Meryl Streep that I can honestly and without reservations say that I hate from beginning to end. It's complicated. Jane, played by Streep, works as a baker and is celebrating her empty nest by having her kitchen on her sprawling property remodeled. She fools around with her ex-husband and the architect that is designing the new kitchen. There's a lot of drinking Pinot Noir, which is a drink I find revolting. And on top of all of that, the children of her former marriage start sobbing like babies because their parents may or may not get back together. This is out of nowhere and is genuinely bizarre. These people are all loaded. Their millennial kids are able to afford their own house for goodness sake. Jane sits around with her friends day drinking, and money is never even an issue with her kitchen extension. I mean, if you really wanted to solve this whole thing, just introduce polyamory. Make ex-husband Jake your second, and architect Adam your prime. It's not that complicated. Now, onward to something fun. The game is afoot in the smash hit Sherlock Holmes, starring Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law, alongside an excellent cast with some fantastic direction from Guy Ritchie. You've probably seen it, so you know it's fantastic. It made a killing at the box office, and no mystery as to why. The entire cast did a fantastic job, and if you have yet to see this film, please do. The sequel is also very good. Now we come to an independent film and adaptation of Tennessee Williams' forgotten screenplay, The Loss of a Teardrop Diamond. It stars Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Evans, among others. Whether you're a fan of Williams from his other works, or you just love the leads, or even if you're just curious, I urge you to see this at your earliest convenience. I think it will, at the very least, entertain you with a greater satisfaction than some of the other films from this year. And... For the final film of 2009, The White Ribbon, written and directed by Michael Haneke. It's a German black-and-white drama about the village of Eichwald in northern Germany prior to World War I. The Baron, Doctor, and Pastor decide that they will begin imposing their wills over the peasant farmers, women, and children of the area. The pastor leads confirmation classes to make the children feel shame over the littlest things and makes them wear white ribbons on their arms to remind them of their sins staining their innocence and purity. Not even his own son escapes his cruel judgment. The widowed doctor seduces his housekeeper only to berate her, then turns around and sexually abuses his teenage daughter. The baron simply acts erratic in an attempt to maintain his dominion over the people. From there, things quickly fly apart as mishaps occur all around town, and unknown assailants begin attacking people. It is soon fathomed that the assailants are likely the children that the pastor gave white ribbons to. We never do find out, as when the story concludes, the narrator is drafted. But nobody in Eichwald feels safe or content from then on. It represents an excellent didactic about authority and hierarchy, as well as the easy influences of fascism on any society with enough fear and anger behind it. It was awarded the Palme d'Or at Cannes, among numerous other honors, so check out the white ribbon if you're so inclined. In conclusion, I think one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this year in cinema is that it was one of a few sequential years in which I just didn't go to movies. 
It was the recession, and I stayed home a lot or went out with friends to places, but tried to just enjoy movies at home, either online or from physical media. So I missed out on some of these during that time. I hope you enjoyed all this, and that it brought you some interest in seeing some forgotten films of the year that might engage, entertain, or even enlighten you. It has been a wild ride looking back at all of this various content from over a tumultuous year. If you want me to ever examine a film more in depth, I would love a chance to give it a look and a few words of discussion. Thanks for listening. Take care.